Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I'm Jason Scorse. Hope everybody is doing great. Before I get into the substance of this episode, I want to just talk a little bit about the fact that podcasts like this, editorials, kind of armchair quarterbacking seems to be one of America's favorite pastimes, right? In the last few years, we've all become experts on pandemics and fascism and climate emergency and now on war and Ukraine. And there is something off-putting about that, right? The fact that people on the sidelines who are not necessarily experts or directly involved in the difficult decision-making are the ones kind of pontificating about these very serious issues. And I include myself in that category to some extent, right? I don't have deep expertise on every single topic I talk about, although I do try to be pretty informed, right? I'm not going to do an episode on something I'm really clueless about or just read one article about, particularly on issues of climate and sustainability and politics. You know, I have some pretty deep expertise over the last decade, so I think it's, you know, what I have to say is at least reasonably informed. But but with that said, I just want to say, obviously, it's weird. It's weird just, you know, making opinions and, and saying, you know, what should be on pretty big issues. And the, the point I want to make here is that the people in power, the Joe Bidens, the Merrick Garlands, the Nancy Pelosi's, you know, the people who really have the power... They chose those positions, right? And so people like me and you who are on the sidelines saying what they should do, I think we have a right to do that, especially for our elected leaders, because again, they chose those positions. And, you know, when history calls, they need to step up, right? For example, Biden has wanted to be president forever. He's probably wanted to be president since he was a teenager or earlier, and he's been he was running for president for 40 years practically. So now that he is president and he has very, very difficult things to deal with, right? He's got no margin for error in the Congress. He's he's just coming after an insurrection, a pandemic. Now there's a Russian invasion of, of a you know of a peaceful European nation. All in his first year, right? This is all in his first year. But you know what? He wanted the job, so he's got to step up. And I think he actually is. I think he's doing great. But, you know, Merrick Garland, people are yelling at Merrick Garland. And I'm I'm being patient that I think the Department of Justice under Garland has till the end of this year to indict Trump. I said that at the beginning of the year, and I'm sticking to that. And you know what? He knew when he was, you know, took the attorney general position that he was going to be faced with these big questions. So you know what? History's calling, Merrick. You know, step up. So I think it's it's legitimate for us to call on these people who have, you know, who have volunteered for these positions and they're in the positions, right? And then we have someone like Zelensky in Ukraine, right, who's showing that even guys who a few, few years ago were literally playing the piano with their dick. That's a true story, by the way can step up and be world leaders, right? You know, so 
Again, Zelensky had no idea, I don't think, that he was going to be faced with an invasion by Russia. He he knew he was going to be under pressure from Russia, but you know what? He stepped up, and it shows that, you know what, when history calls, people's true character comes out and their true motivations come out. On the flip side, what this also shows is that, you know, Republicans and the former president, who are fascist traitors, are doing this as a choice. They didn't have to do that. You know, there were a lot of people after Trump got elected said, you know what, let's give him a chance. Let's give him a chance to, you know, to um, you know, make his way into the presidency and grow into the role and learn it. I thought that was bullshit because he's a corrupt fascist and he, you know, and I thought the chance of him reforming. But, you know, there's a logic to that to say, hey, he did this kind of as a joke. He wanted to do it for his brand. Holy shit, you have the nuclear codes now. You're the president of the United States. You got to take this seriously. I entertain that as a possibility, right? And you know what? If if Trump had been, you know, half a brain, he could have been a really successful president. He could have cut some deals with the Democrats on infrastructure and maybe on some, you know, social programs. You know, he could have given the right-wing base their, you know, their hardcore justices, but cut some deals with the Democrats, not just been a racist fucking asshole for the entire time. And you know what? I think he would have won by a landslide re-election. So the irony is here is his evil and stupidity actually hurt him because I think there's I think there are many pathways where we could be in a second Trump term where he had won by huge margins and was very popular because again most Americans or most white Americans and many Americans are deeply racist and so they would love the racism and you know what if the economy was going good and he had dealt with the pandemic in a, in, in a, in a reasonable way. I think people would have reelected him without even, you know, blinking, right? So again, people make choices, and we should hold them accountable to the, those choices. Politics is the hardest hardest job there is. Period. I have never been directly in politics, but I work with a lot of politicians. I know the ins and outs of political decision making and how hard it is to get things done, especially in democracies. It's easier. In autocracies, right, where you can just say what you want and it's done, right, where you actually have to convince people and build coalitions. This is incredibly, incredibly hard work. The right wing has done an outstanding job of convincing people that all politics is corrupt. So therefore, just go with who punches your enemies the hardest, right? That's basically the Republican thing. The government sucks. Politicians are corrupt. We're all corrupt. So vote for me because I'll punch the people you want to punch, right? Now, this is bullshit, right? Many politicians have high moral character and serve the public interest. And I've been, you know, really lucky to work with many of them throughout my career. And so it is our job as citizens to know the difference between the good and the bad politicians and to have the backs of the good ones making the hard choices, okay? So that's kind of where I want to start off here, right, is that I get it that armchair quarterbacking, you know, is not the most um, elevated, um, you know, role in American politics. But I'm doing this, I think, with a well-informed or reasonably informed perspective. And I'm trying to say, let's support the good people and oppose the bad people to make a better society. So I just kind of wanted to get that out of the way before diving into today's topic which is the real access of evil. Of course, George Bush famously, you know, did the access of evil um, and his, you know, global war on terrorism. And it was Iraq, Iran, North Korea. 
But, you know, as much as those countries are evil or it certainly, you know, um, have a lot of evil um, in their regimes, they are not the true access of evil that I want to speak about, which are the fossil fuel companies, the petro dictators and the Republican Party, the GOP. Before laying into the fossil fuel companies, I want to address a critique that these corporations aren't evil. They're just doing what corporations everywhere do. They're maximizing their profits. You're a coal company. You're an oil company. You're a gas company. You want to maximize profits. It means you know drill as much as you can, extract it, sell it for as much as you can. That's what corporations do. It's silly to call them evil. On some level, this is true. The way corporate charters are structured so that companies are legally required to maximize shareholder value, even at the expense of society, is a huge part of the problem of modern capitalism. So I want to admit there is some truth in that. The first thing to note here is that capitalism doesn't have to be structured this way. Corporate charters could be structured to require consideration of social values and not just profit. In some ways, this is what the new B Corp model is all about, right? Making profit one of many corporate values, but not the exclusive one. And also, besides fossil fuel companies, there are many other companies, chemical companies, tobacco and alcohol companies, drug companies, weapons manufacturers, who profit at all costs from destroying, you know, many facets of society. And they're behavior borders on the truly sociopathic, right? That we as a society have incentivized corporations to act in this horrific antisocial manner is a core problem of capitalism. And I think it's one that I will revisit later on, right? But fossil fuel companies are particularly evil because their product is responsible for so much war, death, and existential risk And also, and this is key, they have been actively spreading disinformation and lies for decades. They have been incredibly slow to shift their business models to clean energy. Of course, they have huge amounts of fossil fuel reserves that, you know, if if we move off of fossil fuels, may turn out to be stranded assets and, in fact, must be stranded if we're going to stabilize the climate. But when oil prices were high and they were raking in excess profits, they could have invested in massive research and development and transition campaigns so that they could make money during the transition. But they didn't do this nearly at scale. They did a little things on the margins, mostly greenwashing, but they continued to lie and bankroll the worst politicians who, you know, basically ran cover for them. So in a world with a large mix of good, bad, and ugly, the fossil fuel companies are bad and ugly, and therefore they get the first slot in the true access of evil. More after the break. Say that the man has a 
Okay, so as I've said before, if we look at the worst regimes in the world, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, what they all have in common is dependence on oil to fund their despotic regimes. And once a country goes down this path and they do not diversify their economy and become ever more dependent on fossil fuel revenue, they are also incentivized to create chaos in the world since this raises the price of oil. You know, this is something that people really need to wrap their heads around, right? Every time there is a global conflict or oil supplies are threatened, prices spike many dollars a barrel. And for many countries selling millions of barrels a day, this is just like free money. You know, imagine you're selling something for 80 bucks a barrel, and then there's some chaos halfway around the world, and boom, you wake up the next morning, it's 100 bucks a barrel. That's 20 bucks a barrel. Say you're selling 5 million a day, right? That's $100 million a day, boom, every single day, free from chaos. That happens enough, and you go, wow, chaos is my friend. I like chaos. I don't mind if there's more. Maybe I'll engineer a little so that these spikes are continuous and I'm always just raking in excess profits, right? This creates an incentive for a chaotic world, right? The last thing that, you know, these despotic regimes want is a nice, peaceful, stable world where people aren't spending tons of money on the military, where politicians aren't getting riled up about how high gas prices so that, you know, they can make a, a transition to green energy nice and calmly and consistently. That's what they don't want. They want chaos, right? And they these regimes know that they have the rest of us in a bind. And as long as everyone is addicted to their products, they can hang back and reef the product profits. So putting the petrostates in the access of evil is easy, right? They're literally making money off of the, the product that is destroying the climate and fomenting war and chaos. And then they get incentivized to continue along this path. The GOP, the Republican Party, is the final leg of this access of evil tripod because they are literally whores of the fossil fuel industry and have carried water for the climate deniers for decades. The GOP as a party is thoroughly corrupt and they block any efforts to make a major transition away from fossil fuels. They will just never, ever vote to move away from fossil fuels in a, in a just and sustainable manner. It's just not in their interest. They are in the pocket of the fossil fuel companies. This not only keeps America at the mercy of petrodictators, which then fuels more war and military spending, which Republicans also like, but it guarantees an unstable climate that threatens all of humanity. And so while the GOP is entirely bought and paid for by big oil and gas, the Democrats do have their own problems, specifically Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is the recipient of the most fossil fuel money in all of Congress. So I'm prepared to add him as the lone Democrat to this axis of evil if he blocks climate progress this year. As many of you know, Manchin blocked the Build Back Better bill that had passed the House and then included over $500 billion in very progressive climate policy. And he blocked it right before Christmas. He put the lump of coal in the stocking right before Christmas. But now he is saying that he's open to a stripped-down version of Build Back Better that includes most of the climate provisions, some prescription drug reforms, as well as deficit reduction. 
So he's claiming that he's not against the climate stuff. He just didn't want a lot of the social spending that he thought was wasteful and not paid for. So look, I'll take Manchin at his word, right? If that is true, he has till the end of this summer to get a deal done. And given that he has a few specific issues, and these are issues that people have been working on for years, we'll know by summer if he's serious. Because if he doesn't put something serious on the table that the Democrats can get behind, we'll know that this has all been for show. That this has just been his attempt to continually have his name in the headlines and everyone coming to ask him how progress is being made and string people along. But the Senate map going forward from 2022 on for basically the rest of this decade is pretty ugly for the Democrats. I'm not one of these people that say the Democrats are doomed and they're never going to have power again. You know what? The Democrats control both senators from Georgia, both senators from Arizona. No one would have predicted that a while back. Things are in flux. Things are unpredictable. A lot depends on the candidates, good and bad. If the Republicans keep putting these fucking whack job QAnon lunatics up for Senate, you know, that's going to give the Democrats a better chance. The Democrats put good candidates um, on, like, Tim Ryan in Ohio and John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, and they go up against a whack job, they can win, right? So I think, you know, the Democrats might be able to hold on to the Senate the rest of this decade, but it's going to be tough. So if they can't eke out something this year on climate after working so hard on it and coming so close, I do think it's reasonable to say that it's a low probability that, that, you know, the U.S. will reach its climate goals by 2030 that we've laid out. I think that is true. We have to really do something this year. Now, as just a kind of almost masochistic exercise, it's amazing to ponder how the Democrats literally have 49 out of 50 senators willing to do something big on climate, and Manchin is standing in the way. You know, in some ways, it's not really a good consolation, but in some ways, we don't even really deserve his seat. West Virginia is literally the Trumpiest state in the nation. So that we have a Democrat there is a miracle, right? But it's an aberration. And we should have won Maine and North Carolina in 2020, and we didn't. But you know what? That's neither here nor there in the current reality. Those are just the kind of masochistic musings of a, of a Democratic supporter who just wishes we didn't need Manchin's vote. But we do. And again, we'll know by August whether he's serious, and if he is, we could actually get something done that'll be pretty, um, you know, pretty historic. The American electorate, unfortunately, is stubbornly ignorant, and in our twisted system, there's just no room for even the smallest error or underperformance, and that's where we're at, where literally we need every single vote in the Senate. So I hope Manchin will do the right thing, and I will happily praise him for any climate deal he helps get over the finish line, even if it's not, you know, the, the ideal one that the progressives put together. If he gets something together with hundreds of billions in climate, clean energy funding, even if he puts some stuff in there, you know, to boost, you know, liquefied natural gas to Europe or something or another, you know, keeping nuclear power plants online or, or whatever, or even some R&D for carbon capture from fossil fuel, stuff that's probably not really the best use of money, I'll still give him credit and I will praise him. But you know what? We will know within the next four or five months. Regardless of whether some version of Build Back Better passes, there is still a lot the Biden administration can do through the executive branch. 
Um, it's critical that he or another Democrat win in 2024, because then at least we have the eight years from 2021 to 2029 to redirect the economy in this decarbonized pathway. And it will be hard to reverse that progress no matter if you know a Republican fascist comes to office in 2028. But that's getting ahead. We really need to focus now on 2022. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot we can do. It's really in Joe Manchin's hands. And I don't think criticizing him at this point is a good strategy. We should just hang back and let him try to cut a deal with Pelosi and Schumer. So I will save kind of you know future Democratic actions on climate after we get through this year and really see what's possible with the Democratic majorities in Congress. So with that, everybody, I'll come back with the antidote uh, right after the break. And again, here's hoping Manchin does the right thing. Okay, this antidote will be a little longer because this issue of decarbonization is so crucial and also so exasperating. It has been 50 fucking years that people have been warning the U.S. to decarbonize or risk climate catastrophe and endless war. 50 years, my entire lifetime. And yet here we are in 2022 and we're having the same conversations And the axis of evil is still saying the same old bullshit about drill, baby, drill. Get more dependent, more addicted, and just keep, keep sucking from the oil well until the last drop. It's important to note that we have wasted trillions, that's trillions with a T, more in useless wars and paying to fill up our gas tanks with oil from the Middle East and Russia and Venezuela than it would have taken to get off oil. That's what's so frustrating about this, is that we've spent more money in wasting, you know, um, because of our addiction, wasting on wars and, and, you know, securing pipelines and literally just filling up our tanks with our huge trucks and SUVs than it would have taken to transition to clean energy. So if we had wisdom and foresight America could be truly energy secure, truly energy independent, living off of electricity generated by the sun and wind, or even nuclear power plants. That's fine. But we could be completely energy secure in a real way, not this fake way where we produce lots of oil, but we're still at the mercy of the global oil price. So it's insane that we're having this same conversation and ignoring the wisdom of everyone who's been shouting from the rooftops for 50 years to get off oil to avoid these type of dependencies and entanglements. So the antidote for today is to put decarbonization at the top of your priority list for just about everything. And look, I know there are lots of problems in the world, racism, sexism, inequality, but almost every problem at some level is connected to our addiction to fossil fuels. And while other problems matter a lot, none are as existential as this. 
Because if we don't get off fossil fuels, we won't have a livable planet and we will have endless war. And don't forget, in times of climate crisis and war, do you think racism is going to get better? Inequality going to get better? Of course not. Our addiction to fossil fuels is a force multiplier for virtually everything bad in the world. So, on an individual level, when you're buying big ticket items, cars, appliances, homes, go super efficient and electric. When you need a new water heater, go electric. A new car, go electric. A new home, get it wired for all electric heating and an electric stove, right? And if you have the money, go get some Tesla batteries and a solar system and you know, make your home a zero carbon home. You will save money and do your part in this transition to get off fossil fuels. On the macro level, support companies and politicians who are promoting decarbonization. Put this front and center in your thinking. Where you work, wherever it is, an educational institution, a government agency, a corporation, a nonprofit, your own business, push to decarbonize and lower your carbon footprints throughout your entire supply chain and procurement. Right At every level, every institution has a huge carbon footprint, but it doesn't have to be that way. And you have the power to help this decarbonized transition. When it comes to your diet, eat lower on the food chain, which means more plant-based so that it decarbonizes your dietary footprint. You'll also be healthier and stop supporting the torture and murder of animals. So it's a win-win-win all around. Right? How many win-win-wins are there in the world but this is one of them. So that's my antidote for today. Make decarbonization your priority in all your decision-making from the micro to the macro. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care. Be safe. (laughs) 